Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Good evening, I'm Yvonne Stafford, Science for the Public, and I welcome you to the final lecture in our Science Literacy Series at MIT. One of the most exciting fields of modern science and engineering is nanotechnology. And our distinguished guest, Samir Sankasale, says, many potential solutions to medical and environmental issues lie in the nanotech realm of the really, really, really small. Dr. Sankasali is a Tufts University professor of electrical and computer engineering and also an adjunct professor there of biomedical engineering. He's the director of the Tufts Nano Lab and the biomedical innovations from that lab have been receiving substantial media attention. Dr. Sankasali is an associate editor of the IEEE in Transactions of Biomedical Circuits and Systems, and he serves on numerous committees in nanotechnology organizations. I'd like to also mention that the Sankasali Lab has demonstrated a great commitment to creating zero-cost do-it-yourself diagnostics for developing nations, which allows developing nations to do very sophisticated uh, innovations for, especially around uh, medical uh, with nanotechnology instead of having these very expensive labs. In tonight's presentation, Dr. Samasali will address the ways we can make nano-enabled devices to sense our environment food and health using low-cost, environmentally friendly techniques. I'm sure we will be amazed at the nanotech accomplishments you will describe. And now we're very honored to welcome uh, Samir Sankasai. Thank you, Yvonne. Uh, I'm very happy to be here uh, speaking uh, on this, uh, uh, for this lecture for the science for the public. Uh, the title of my talk is uh, Nanotechnology Advances uh, for the Healthcare and the Environment. And before I begin, I just want to uh, give you the, uh, the size uh, uh, realm that I'm talking about. I found this uh, really nice video that sort of uh, illustrates uh, uh, the, the size of small, a perspective, how small am I really looking at. And this is a video that's readily available online. So this is rhinovirus all the way down to a few nanometers, less than a nanometer. A virus, 0.15 micron. This is a bacteriophage, which is 0.2 microns. A smallpox virus, which is 0.3. These are still bacteria. The E. coli is 2 micrometers. A red blood cells is 8 microns. Poland is around 90 micrometers. A neuron is 100 micron. And these are some of the organisms uh, that you would find around us, really small. An amoeba is around 0.5 millimeters. 
and this gives you a frog egg, which is around a millimeter. So this is the, side, the, the, the length scale uh, we are looking at is smaller than a width of the human hair, much, much smaller than the width of the human hair. So when I, when I think of nanotechnology, we, we can basically have a unit uh, here, which I call a nanoparticle. So just to give you another perspective of how small I'm really looking at, so this is one of the first, uh, one of the first ones synthesized in the lab uh, called the buckyball, uh, which is also known as fullerene. This is around a nanometer uh, in dimensions on the side. And this is basically around 60 carbon atoms linked together uh, in a unit. Now to put this in perspective, how small this buckyball is, uh, it's basically a one millionth of a millimeter or one billionth of a meter. So if you take your ruler and if you take that smallest scale that you see a millimeter, you divide this almost a million times. That's how small we are basically looking at. Yet another perspective, uh, if you compare the size of Earth and a football, that ratio that you get between the Earth and the football is the same as the ratio that you would find between a football and a buckyball. That's, that's the relative scale that we are looking at. So the reason why we want to work in nanotechnology will be evident in the next few slides. So when I talk about nanoscience, what I mean is the ability to study and manipulate materials at the nanometer scale. And nanotechnology is when you are developing new tools, devices, and techniques that exploit some of the unique material properties uh, at, this, uh, at this very uh, small length scale. So who gets credit for bringing this up? This was a lecture that uh, Richard Feynman gave all the way in 1960s uh, when uh, at the annual uh, meeting of the American Physical Society where uh, he talked about the promises of nanotechnology. Uh, one particular quote in his really long lecture that I like uh, is uh, the one that's mentioned here. Atoms on a small scale behave like nothing on a large scale, uh, for they satisfy the laws of quantum mechanics. So as we go down and fiddle around with atoms down there, we are working with different laws, and we can expect to do different things. Now these exotic material properties at the nanoscale um, holds great promise. And he, even though this was far ahead of his time, he brought up many different unique ideas to uh, understand nanotechnology and how nanotechnology can benefit mankind. So some of the nano effects that I would like to mention in particular uh, are the quantum effects. Uh, it is known that the electronic states in a nanomaterial are very different than in the bulk material. And what I mean by that is that in a bulk material you have a continuum of states. In a, in a nanomaterial you have more discrete states. And these discrete states brings about very interesting properties, uh, some of which have resulted in advances in electronics. You have transistors that are in your cell phone or in your PCs that run really fast. Uh, the Moore's law has been benefiting from uh, this uh, amazing 
uh, confinement the, that we have because of nanomaterials. Second is the high surface to volume ratio. So, and I'll, I'll make this clear in the next slide, bulk materials, there is less surface and more volume, but when you go down at the nanometer scale, there is more surface area for the same volume. And this brings about very interesting properties, for example, in chemical reactions, when we are looking at uh, uh, speeding up the rate of chemical reactions or increasing the kinetics of chemical reaction, having more of the material uh, to interact with the environment makes it uh, quite beneficial. The one that I also like, and this will be uh, very interesting to see, is smaller particles absorb and scatter light differently. And this has been instrumental in realizing some of the wonderful effects that people have demonstrated with optical diagnostics, uh, optical communications, uh, and, and so on, and also in sensing. And finally, the, the nano is essentially the scale at which the biology occurs. Uh, proteins, molecules, DNAs, they are, all, they are all entities at the nanometer scale. So recognizing biological entities essentially means you are interacting uh, with uh, naturally occurring uh, nanomaterials. And there is a lot, there are a lot many effects that you would see at nano. And uh, I'll bring that up, some of which is materials become a much more stronger, durable, a lightweight, and so on. So this is the first, nanomaterials offer high reactivity. So this is a, a, a picture that I got from uh, the, the nano.gov website and actually illustrates this concept of a high reactivity, uh, which comes from having high surface area. So if you look at a, a, a material, a bulk material, which is one centimeters on its side, it has a total, it has six surfaces, so it has a total surface area of six centimeters square. So if you're performing any kind of interaction, or if you're performing a chemical reaction, you basically have access to around only six centimeters square of surface area with the environment. But imagine that you break this up into smaller pieces, you know, one millimeter uh, on the side, so you have, uh, and if you just sum up all the surface areas that you would see, you would essentially now have almost 60 centimeters square of surface area. So the same volume of material, but much more, uh, uh, much more surface. That essentially means you have much more material to interact with the environment. Taking this even further down, if you have one nanometer cubes, which is one billionth of a meter, you almost have a 60 million centimeters square of surface area. So it's the same amount of material, but you have much more uh, material access available to interact with the environment. So that essentially plays a role in, for example, think about uh, making better catalysts, right? So catalysts are essentially elements that help chemical reactions, changes the kinetics of the chemical reactions. Now, for example, your catalytic converter in your car takes in the toxic fumes and makes it more uh, less harmless, even though they're still pollutants, uh, but they're less harmless than uh, before the catalytic converters. So if you, you need these nanomaterials, basically make it possible to, to use less of these catalysts to, to convert more of these toxic fumes into less, less toxic. Also, it helps for making better filters and purifiers. Uh, there is 
a lot of research activity today in using nanomaterials for water desalination to, to basically purifying water uh, directly from seawater and making it available. And this is all possible because of this high reactivity that a high surface to volume ratio in a nanomaterial offers. And again, without spending a lot of time on this, nano is also the length scale of biology. So if you look at uh, red blood cells, it has this protein hemoglobin. It's almost, it's only 5.5 nanometer and it's responsible for carrying oxygen throughout your body. So if you're uh, making any drugs or devices that, that target a certain oxygen supply, you're essentially interacting with a nano, a naturally occurring protein, which is a nanomaterial. Of course, DNA, which is almost the uh, size of a nanometer scale. This is essentially our genetic code. It's a key building block of human life, and it's only about two nanometers in diameter. So if you're trying to uh, decode the human genome, or you're trying to make diagnostic devices that identifies, let's say, a Ebola virus through its DNA or through its RNA, you're essentially making diagnostic devices that are interacting uh, with a naturally occurring nanomaterial. You're basically trying to figure out at this, at this scale what, what this particular material is. And so are many other proteins, lipids, and carbohydrates. They're essentially at the same length scales that uh, uh, of, uh, of few nanometers. Another property, as I mentioned, is nanomaterials have very unique uh, uh, colors. So this is an example. You know, when you look at gold, for us it's all yellow, right? So, and, but that's just the bulk property of, 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 of gold. What happens if you go down, if I basically break this gold down into smaller and smaller pieces all the way down to nanometer, do you still get yellow? The, it's interesting that nanomaterials, because of that quantum effect, because of these discrete states, the smaller I make the gold nanoparticle, I basically get structural color. So this, it can exhibit the same gold particle if I make it 20 nanometers or 30 nanometers or 80 nanometers, doesn't have yellow color. It can exhibit the entire spectrum of color all the way. Here it's shown all the purple to, to blue to, uh, to red. And it only depends on the size of, of, the, of the nanoparticle. It has less to do with the, the material, but more to do with its size and shape. Now, now, this effect is something we understand today, but nanotechnology is in fact quite old. Now, and this is very well known, and I would say our ancestors knew nanotechnology, even though they may not have coined the term nanotechnology. So if you look at some of the stained glasses that you see in the churches, uh, in old medieval churches, these are not chemical dyes or pigments that gave them color. This is essentially metallic salts which they mixed up with the glass when they were forming the glass that gave them these colors. Actually, these are gold nanoparticles. Some of them are copper oxide nanoparticles. As they mix in with, with, with silica during this high temperature melting process, gives them these very exotic colors that still last today. They will never bleach because this is structural color, color that comes from the size and the shape of the, of the particle, 
and not so much from the chemical composition. So for example, the red stained glass that you see here from 20 nanometers of gold particles, an orange stained glass will probably around 80 nanometers of gold particles inside this, inside this glass. Now this is uh, the realm of science fiction and this has got a lot of news coverage. Uh, there, is, there was this article in American Scientist and it is, uh, that basically talked about something called a space elevator. Something that would ferry materials from Earth all the way down to satellites. And this is almost 90,000 kilometers relying on the amazing properties of an allotrope of carbon, the carbon nanotubes. Right? So this is basically carbon nanotubes. These are almost a nanometer in diameter. This is a rolled up sheet of single atom carbon. When you fold them in different configurations, gives you materials with very unique tensile properties, very unique flexible flexibility, very lightweight and durable. It's almost 100 times stronger than steel. And it has been shown experimentally, and there have been many groups which have shown a few tens and hundreds of meters of these carbon nanotube fibers just as strong or even stronger, stronger than steel. So even though we are not there yet because we still haven't perfected the way of making carbon nanotube at such uh, length scales with high purity, it is a possibility. It is a possibility to be able to connect things lightweight with a cable that is, uh, that is this strong. So some more examples of nanomaterials before I go into some of the research activities in my group. And this is essentially just capturing all that we see around. Uh, you have nanomaterials from carbon, which I just mentioned, carbon nanotubes uh, shown here. You have quantum dots, similar to these gold nanoparticles that have structural colors. Quantum dots have colors, very unique, bright colors, uh, much more stable uh, than, than, than chemical dyes. There are gold nanoparticles, which are used extensively in medical. Uh, we have silica particles, porous particles. Uh, there is a new kind of nanomaterial, the unrolled version of carbon nanotube, which is called graphene, which has been making waves in the next generation of electronics and sensing. There are all kinds of magnetic particles that people have used in many different applications from ferrofluids, magnetic storage, to medical diagnostics. And comparing this with more naturally occurring nanomaterials, which have also been engineered. So proteins and lipids that have been synthesized to which we call the organic nanoparticles that have been used in a variety of biomedical applications. I should also mention that where the field is going, there is a lot of excitement about two-dimensional nanomaterials. What I mean by two-dimensional nanomaterials are materials which are just one atom thick. And they're basically two-dimensional in nature. Uh, so they are what we call 2D materials. Uh, a gold nanoparticle would be something, a 1D material, uh, 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 0D material. A nanowire or a carbon nanotube would be a 1D material. A graphene is a 2D material. So there, have been, there has been a lot of excitement about many different forms of 2D material, not just carbon. There is molybdenum disulfide. There is uh, uh, there is hexagonal boron nitride, uh, and so on. And so these is lots of opportunities. Each of those nanomaterials 
have very unique physical, chemical, biological, and optical properties. And, they, and we are just witnessing a lot of excitement in, 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 in this field, uh, especially uh, coming from uh, chemists and engineers who have been working together to make a lot of exciting development in, the, in this field. Personally, I have been uh, working with carbon-based nanomaterials. So these are all the way from fullerenes to, to graphite. So if you look at the very bottom, the fullerene is what we call the zero-dimensional nanomaterial. Carbon nanotube is a one-dimensional nanomaterial. So graphene is a 2D. And graphite, which we are uh, used to using in our pencil, this is a three-dimensional sort, of sort of a nanomaterial. So the question then comes, if you're looking at materials this small, how do we actually make them? And so I would say that there are two ways of making them. One is a top-down approach. And a top-down approach is essentially you start with a bulk material and you start etching away pieces uh, until it gets smaller to the size of nanomaterials, which is what our transistors and all the electronic devices that you see today and so this, this comes under this area called photolithography. Uh, it uses optical techniques and masks, just like traditional photography. The, the difference is the resolution, the spatial resolution you can get from this process is much smaller. There is also inkjet printing. There is nano-imprint lithography. And there are many other techniques. These are top-down versions of making materials that small. What is very exciting are the bottom-up methods for making. And the reason why bottom-up methods are much more beneficial is because they can be realized without expensive facilities. This is something that you can synthesize nanomaterials, you can bring nanomaterials together without the need for expensive clean room and without the need for very expensive facilities that we have today. And some of these uh, are just using chemistry, you know, covalent functionalization, electrostatic layer by layer assembly and so on. And I will show you a directed assembly approach in some of the devices that we built. So in my group, uh, we've been working on this uh, grand challenge of what we call smart and connected health. Uh, so what, what I mean by that is we want to be able to sense our environment uh, and also sense our own health and find any links between the two. And that basically means that we should have sensing and diagnostic capabilities where we sense different parameters in the environment. For example, we should be able to make sensors or devices that can monitor our weather, that can monitor pollution, that can monitor water quality, air quality, food, our home environment, our work environment, uh, and many more things around the environment. It includes both our immediate near term and the global. Uh, global environment. At the same time, we want to be able to monitor our own health. So when I'm, what I mean by that is being able to monitor you know, our diet, our nutrition, uh, being able to even assess our mental status. You know, are we alert or drowsy? Um, also help monitoring our chronic conditions if you have diabetes or heart uh, uh, diseases to be able to stay on top of those things. At the same time, we want to be able to screen uh, for diseases like cancer and infectious diseases. And uh, so to sort of have the ability to, to connect both environmental and health and in, in this whole theme of smart and connected health, 
will, will definitely be uh, quite an advance. So our goal in our uh, lab has been to innovate uh, materials, uh, devices, and circuits using nanotechnology uh, for the smart and connected health. And one more thing I would like to mention is when, when, when we're working on these uh, devices for both environment and health, we want to make sure that these devices are low cost and they are not something that not just a developed nation is able to make and, and produce, but also something that uh, a, a resource poor nation is also able to, to, to make and do on their own. So let me just give you a couple of examples uh, from my lab. There are plenty of uh, applications. And I just wanted to bring this up just to give you a notion of uh, what, uh, under, uh, what umbrella topic that we can, uh, we can talk about when it comes to nano-enabled nose and tongue. If you look at uh, the world today, you have cameras in your phones and in your PCs that provide you what I call machine vision, right? So you can see things. Uh, we have, you know, uh, headphones. Uh, we have uh, all kinds of hearing aids that provides us a sense of artificial hearing, which is quite accurate. But if you think about the other two senses, the, 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 the sense of uh, a smell and the sense of tongue, which essentially encompasses almost all of the environmental sensing application. If, you're a, if you can sense the environment, the pollutants in the air, it's almost as if you're making a device that is acting as an environmental nose. And if you're detecting water quality, it's almost as if you're trying to make an artificial taste or a tongue that can taste you know, what kind of uh, uh, pollutants you have in the water. So this whole area of research, you can basically classify under the category of electronic nose and tongue. So let me just give you some of the, the, the research activities uh, in my group uh, on making electronic nose and tongue. So some of the applications uh, for electronic nose, as I just mentioned, environment, but it can also be used for monitoring uh, food spoilage. It can be used for monitoring uh, from, uh, diseases, uh, can be used in homeland security, can be used in chemical industry. So the, the applications for, for making uh, electronic nose and tongue are plentiful. So what are the requirements for making an electronic version of, uh, uh, of a nose? You have to have lots of sensing elements. We have a lot of odor receptors in our, in our nose that provides us with the sense of smell. But the real sense of smell doesn't come from the receptors themselves. It comes from a brain. So it has to have some kind of uh, um, uh, machine uh, or a machine intelligence behind the sensing, uh, the sensing elements. Second interesting characteristics of an electronic nose is each of these sensing elements are cross-reactive. What I mean by that is these odor receptors don't just respond to one particular specific targets. They respond to multiple targets, and it's the ensemble response of all these odor receptors that together form a sense of smell. So if you are trying to make an electronic version of, these, uh, of, of the nose, we want to be able to make a platform that provides us with this very cross-reactive uh, sensing capability. I just mentioned the machine learning and the pattern recognition, which is the real brain behind the, the sensing. And at the end, we also want to make sure that these devices are very low power. 
So this is uh, how uh, we can use nanomaterials to make an electronic version of nose. Uh, so here, because of the diversity of nanomaterials and each one of them having unique properties, chemical properties, and their high reactivity because of the high surface to volume ratio, uh, you could actually assemble these different nanomaterials in an array format where each sensing element responds to a target order or a target gas in the environment. And since these materials are different and they have these unique properties, they will provide a very cross-reactive sensing response. And so the idea here is to basically figure out a way to bring these nanomaterials on a, on a platform. I would like to call this electronic breadboard. You basically plug all these different nanomaterials and connect them to an electronic readout and then read some electrical signatures. They could be electrical signatures or they could be optical signatures and of the response to the environment. So the way we assemble these nanomaterials is what is uh, through a process called dielectrophoresis. Dielectrophoresis is a way to bring nanomaterials to a particular spatial location on this electronic breadboard. This is a way to fabricate uh, these uh, uh, nanomaterial-based uh, sensing devices. And the advantage of being able to do that on this electronic breadboard is access to uh, circuitry for electronic readout. You can also implement uh, a processor that can collect the data from the sensor arrays and perform machine learning on them. And, and they can be made such that they are in single chip, they are low power, and they are low cost. So some of the nanomaterials that we have used in our labs are shown here. Uh, they range from conductive organic uh, nanomaterials like polypyrrole, carbon nanotubes, uh, which, are, which I just mentioned. This is just a mesh of carbon nanotubes. Graphene in the form of reduced graphene oxide, copper oxide, and there are many more nanomaterials. So I just mentioned uh, how we assemble them, and the process is sequential. It is the property that we use, as I mentioned, is dielectrophoresis. So what we, the, what we have to do to get these nanomaterials to assemble at a given location is to apply a non-uniform AC electric field. And most particles polarize in the presence of electric field. And when they polarize, they either go towards the maximum of the electric field or towards the minimum of the electric field. And you can perform this dielectrophoretic assembly over a large substrate in parallel uh, to, to get the nanomaterials to assemble at a, at a given location. So the interesting thing about this process is it's actually compatible with a variety of nanomaterials. It's a solution-based approach. It doesn't require an expensive clean room. All you have to do is apply electric field between a set of electrodes, and you can basically bring and assemble the nanomaterials at a given site. And so we have shown a large-scale assembly of almost 50 different uh, sites on, on a given chip. And the next slide basically shows you an electronic nose concept that was solution deposited with four different nanomaterials. So this. In here are uh, almost 42 electrode pairs, and we have copper oxide nanowires assembled on one side, graphene on one side, polypyrrole on one side, and carbon nanotube. And the assembly is almost 95% yield. 
and we use them for testing volatile organic compounds, VOCs that we found in nature, uh, and also methanol, acetone, ammonia, and, 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 and other volatile gases. And this is one of the first demonstrations of having an integrated single chip uh, electronic nose using nanomaterials uh, done uh, outside the clean room. We didn't just try those four nanomaterials, we have expanded considerably beyond those nanomaterials. As I mentioned, uh, the way we get electronic nose capability is the diversity of sensing elements. And so to get the diversity, we have access to many different uh, metal oxides, uh, magnesium oxide, nickel oxide, tungsten oxide. These were also assembled in an array a large scale array to basically give you sensitivity. So this table is showing you both positive and negative responses to these different uh, gases. And the way we can identify a certain gas is by recognizing the degree to which each of these individual sensing elements respond. So this is an ensemble response that provides you with a very unique signature to a particular target gas. So the outlook for, for this application, as I mentioned, is environmental monitoring. This is showing you an actual uh, screenshot of 42 sensor arrays. Uh, copper oxide is in red, carbon nanotubes blue, graphene in green, polypyrrole in purple. And so this, this data basically feeds into a machine learning algorithm to be able to identify a particular gas and its concentration. So you feed in some kind of a classification engine or a machine learning sort of a, a engine to perform the recognition. The same electronic nose can also be used for monitoring health. So you can imagine um, being able to monitor your breath and your saliva to figure out volatile organic compounds. It has been shown that there are a lot of volatile organic compounds indicative of an underlying medical condition by just monitoring your breath and saliva. So this is a non-invasive way of early screening of diseases uh, that can be used. And so, for example, uh, we have done work in our group where we've identified elevated level of dissolved carbon dioxide and ammonia in your saliva that's indicative of uh, uh, stomach cancer, uh, an early screening of stomach cancer that comes from infection of this particular kind of bacteria called Helicobacter pylori. So when you have that kind of infection, it causes raised levels of ammonia and CO2 in your, in your saliva, and this particular device can be used to monitor that. And there are many other uh, 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 research activities in the community which have used these nanomaterials and these electronic nodes um, uh, using nanomaterials for detecting all kinds of cancers uh, and uh, um, uh, other conditions. So as, as you can see, for this device to really take off, for this nanomaterial device to really take off, we should have a way to make these devices portable and low cost in a single chip that can run a single battery. That's basically something that, uh, that we've been working on. So just to give you uh, 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 an alternate uh, realization of the same electronic nose platform, is this uh, very new research effort in my group called Paper Nose. Uh, this is essentially an entire electronic nose platform realized on paper. 
not an expensive substrate, the regular paper that you use in day-to-day -day life. So this is the entire dielectrophoretic assembly of both the nanomaterials and an optical sensing elements on, on, on a paper substrate. Now if you look at the processing, this does not require expensive facilities. All it requires is uh, a printer where you can basically pattern conductive and insulating inks on, on paper and functionalizing this nanomaterial using an inking process. The way we ink a newspaper or the way we ink an inkjet printer on a substrate. So you're essentially just depositing different inks on different sites on a piece of paper and connecting it to a, to a very simple readout. And we've demonstrated uh, detection of almost all the volatile organic compounds uh, that we find in a, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in a petroleum kind of an environment where we can basically detect elevated levels of ethanol, methanol, and so on using a combination of these different nanomaterial inks and, and optical sensing dyes. So this is, uh, this is, uh, this is very uh, a, a platform that is truly low cost uh, because it doesn't have any uh, uh, necessity for doing expensive uh, clean room the last part of the talk I'm going to talk about is the, the new effort on, uh, in our group uh, called Nano-Enabled Smart Threads. Uh, so this uh, is a, a direction targeted towards more implantable and wearable applications and that, uh, that take advantage of the unique properties of uh, just the textile threads that we use and making them smart. So the problem uh, that we st um, uh, started to, when we were uh, working on this was uh, the problem of chronic wounds. Now chronic wound is a big problem. It places a heavy cost and resource burden. Uh, people with diabetes have this issue with diabetic foot ulcers. They have this issue with the wounds not healing in a timely manner. Uh, and in, in some cases, some of these chronic wounds get infected and uh, there is, uh, uh, that can lead to amputation. Uh, so chronic wounds uh, is one of the uh, main causes uh, of uh, uh, main problem with this, uh, um, causes a huge resource burden for the healthcare industry. So the one way of solving the problem with chronic wounds is to be able to intervene uh, at the right time when the wounds are not healing. Uh, and so to be able to do that, we should have means to uh, make sensors and devices that can uh, uh, sense when the wound is not healing and deliver drugs on demand. So to make that, we came up with this idea of smart threads. Now these threads are essentially the same textile threads but made, uh, but made to do additional functions uh, such as uh, serving as microfluidic networks, so they can basically sample the interstitial fluid, the, the wound bed, uh, and to route the information to a chemical and a physical sensor that's also made using threads, and also an electronics platform that's connected on the surface of the wound uh, to route the information from these sensors to, for example, a smartphone. And so what we have here is a platform where smart sensing threads can monitor chemical and physical biomarkers of wound healing such that they can monitor pH, 
temperature, moisture, inflammation. Uh, there are threads, and we like threads because they can go deeper into tissues where nothing else can. They are truly flexible. They can be interwoven with any wound dressing or seal the wound itself in the form of sutures. Uh, and the reason why we like threads is because threads can be made hydrophobic, hydrophilic. They can be made uh, elastic. They can have different strengths uh, and inertness. And you can also connect it to a very small integrated button, which is an electronic button that interfaces with, with these smart sensing threads and, and communicates the sensing data wirelessly. So when this work came out, there was a lot of uh, interest in this. And this is uh, just giving you some of the uh, uh, news uh, uh, blurbs on this research activity. There was an article in Economies that talked about uh, smart threads all sewn up. Uh, smart threads that could plug diagnostic data from your stitches. Uh, the Wall Street Journal talked about new surgical thread that may double as a biosensor. Uh, smart stitches that can send data as they heal wounds. Uh, smart sutures that is changing the scope of wound healing. Uh, and Fortune magazine also talked about how they can help post-op patients. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of problem in where uh, post-surgical uh, the, the, the surgical site gets infected, so this can also help not just the diabetic wounds, but also in, in, in surgical wounds. So smart stitches can send out infection alerts to save patients, uh, and so on. So how do we make these smart sensing threads? Uh, so, so this is a very simple process. Uh, we like to call this a dip and dry approach. So we essentially start with uh, uh, existing threads, which are uh, regular cotton threads or silk threads or uh, um, uh, nylon threads uh, or just surgical suture threads, and we basically go through a dip and dry approach. We dip it in different inks, and these inks are nano-infused inks. They're carbon nanotube inks. They're polypyrrole inks. They are different kinds of inks, and they go through this process, multiple uh, dipping and drying process so that you can basically make a composite thread that have multiple coatings of these nanomaterials. So if you have um, a way to make uh, threads uh, for, with different sensing elements, so the, your first ink could be uh, an ink that senses glucose, uh, you can have another thread that's made that can sense pH, you can have another thread that can sense uh, uh, temperature, you can basically form a very intelligent system with all these smart sensing threads on a bandage or in a suture uh, uh, for, for many of these biomedical applications. So these are just some of the uh, uh, threads that we made. We had raw cotton threads, uh, the, the basic threads, and once we coated them with carbon nanotubes, uh, you get a reel-to-reel -reel processing yields, this pool of carbon nanotube threads. We also have polyaniline, which is another nanomaterial that is sensitive to pH. Uh, so you can also get these polyaniline coated on the threads. You can also coat the threads with both carbon and polyaniline, so you can have a multiple nanomaterials uh, coated on the threads. So what did we do with these threads? Uh, just going through a few slides here, we actually showed that we can monitor pH uh, wirelessly using these threads. Uh, we can also monitor glucose, so not just one thread. This is a combination of three different threads uh, using in, in an electrochemical uh, uh, setup. We can basically monitor physiologically relevant levels of glucose, so you can use these nano-infused threads for monitoring diabetes and, and sugar levels. 
You can also you you can also make these threads that can monitor strain. So if you if you're thinking about wound healing, uh, the the wounds that do not heal have a different tissue strain property than the than the than the normal skin. So if you have these sensing threads that can monitor uh, strain, then you would uh, objectively know whether the wound is healed or not by just uh, using the strain sensing sutures uh, in in place. Uh, so we did some a uh, lot of in vivo measurements with this. This is just showing you one of those where we actually had uh, animal test for monitoring stomach and subcutaneous levels of pH. Uh, pH is a very important biomarker for many different diseases. So this is just showing you that we can wirelessly read out uh, uh, stomach and subcutaneous pH using these smart sensing threads. As I just mentioned, this, the, the strain sensing threads can be objectively used to monitor wound healing. And this is an experiment where we had uh, different size wounds and, and, and the threads were able to uh, communicate wirelessly um, uh, the wound closure, the amount of wound closure uh, in, in, in this particular rat. Recently, we've also demonstrated some new kinds of threads. So these are threads that can deliver drugs on demand. So this is where we basically coated these smart threads with uh, different drugs. Uh, and I'm just uh, showing you one such representative data uh, here. So these threads, uh, essentially these are cotton threads that are coated with uh, uh, carbon nanoparticles uh, and in some cases carbon nanotube and there is a hydrogel coating this is, uh, with the drug, uh, thermally responsive drug particles. So if you, when you pass a current through this uh, uh, carbon uh, conductive coating, it heats up this thread and once it heats up, these thermoresponsive drug particles release drug on demand. Uh, so by controlling the amount of current that's flowing through this cotton thread, conductive cotton thread, you can basically control the amount of drug you deliver at a, at a, given, uh, at a given site. Uh, so you can cycle through the temperature, so you can control the exact dosage. You can also control exactly where it delivers by basically routing the current into appropriate threads. So essentially you have the way to, to, to make this drug delivery um, uh, um, bandages or drug delivery sutures. So we also tested this, uh, these drug delivery threads in an actual diabetic mice. So this is a, uh, a, a mice which was, it's a diabetic uh, model of mice. And this shows you result on the right side, there is a control uh, experiment and the one on the very right is uh, the thread that can de deliver this vascular endothelial growth factor. This is a drug that promotes wound healing. And this shows that the active delivery of drugs using these threads can actually heal wounds faster. So just to conclude, uh, I, we are in the midst of nano revolution with significant impact. Uh, I mentioned sensing uh, for healthcare and environment, but there is also a lot of promise in computing and communications. Transistors are getting faster. We can communicate um, uh, farther. Uh, we, we have much higher data rates in our communication, all because of uh, a scaling uh, advantages at the nanoscale. Uh, I also showed you realization of an electronic nose using a diversity of cross-reactive nanomaterials. I think electronic nose and electronic tongue are something that is uh, still in its infancy and I believe that with uh, much more uh, with, with access to a diversity of nanomaterials and a lot of functionalization in chemistry, we can probably make uh, a an, an true electronic analog of nose or a tongue that will definitely help sniff out a lot of uh, 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 diseases uh, and also help monitor the environment. 
Uh, I also showed a new paradigm of this nano-enabled thread for diagnostics and therapy. Uh, and in all of these applications, I basically uh, showed that we can work with low-cost processing. Most of the techniques we used are low-cost processing, does not require expensive clean rooms. We work with more earth-abundant materials that can be synthesized uh, without relying on expensive facilities. And I think uh, the, the, the promise is there that it can be uh, translated uh, not just here in the developed world, but also in resource-poor nations. So there is definitely a huge impact uh, worldwide for, for something like this. So I want to thank the, the students and postdocs uh, who were involved in some of this work and the collaborators. And this is a truly interdisciplinary effort uh, between um, biomedical engineers, doctors, clinicians, and a lot of collaborators here at, um, uh, in the Boston area and also around, around the country. And thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event. Please check out our website, www.scienceforthepublic.org, for videos of all our events, lists of upcoming events, our weekly Sci News Roundup newsletter, and timely science information.